Support for the Game Podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the Game Podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 116 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian, the Merfolk trickster Gottlieb. What is up, man? Hello, Gerald. I'm glad you are back with us. As much as I love Cedric, I feel like we, at some point, do have to stop rewarding him for poisoning you consistently. That doesn't seem like the type of behavior we should be encouraging from people. I agree, but I feel like uh, a week on, week off isn't too bad, you know? Well, I, I think our fans would disagree. I think they are all very happy that you're here and uh, hope that you're here for many, many weeks in a row consecutively. I mean, I had never missed a cast up until the last two. And I I had some meds from the first ear infection, but now I have hella meds for the second ear infection. Uh, I guess the, the second doctor really wanted me to get better. So I think I'm okay. I think I'm going to be okay. So you're basically invincible is what you're saying. Like you're unstoppable at this point. You're just super Jerry. Right. Yeah, that's that's how medication works, right? Right. That's my understanding of it. Obviously, your only weakness would, of course, be Merfolk Trickster, which, as you know, removes all abilities from an opposing creature. So Yeah, but okay, so you remove like my indestructible, right? Mm-hmm. But I still, uh, if I'm better, you know, I'm like a 10-10 at least. Okay, so you're relying on size to get you through. Yeah, maybe a twenty twenty actually, because that would oh, make sense right. with the token. That is true. So there you go. Anyway, uh, we have a full cast, and I never thought I would say this ever in my life. We have a full cast dedicated to mono blue aggro and standard. Yeah, this is a wild turn of events, and I actually like. I remember this is either last standard or maybe even the previous standard, but we were doing a deck dump. And basically going through every single deck in the standard 5-0s, as fans of our show know that we often do. And we got to mono blue. And we were just both basically like, nope, not doing it. And moved on. And (laughs) I remember a Reddit post. And yes, this is how much of a hellscape my mind is. That I remember random Reddit posts from, you know, almost three or four months ago. But someone just going off that... Pros have this whole attitude towards mono blue. They refuse to accept it as a good deck because it just has a bunch of cheap cards and they can't get past the fact that it doesn't have a bunch of rares, which honestly was one of the dumbest arguments I've ever heard in my entire life. But here's your proof that we are not biased against mono blue. Mono blue was a horrible deck for a very long time. It just had no good matchups, didn't pray in anything, played some really, really bad cards. Guess what? I actually think it's the best deck in standard right now. We have an embarrassment of riches as far as card quality is concerned. It's like before you were struggling to get to actual 60 playables. And Mm -hmm. now it's just like, well, I guess I'll cut some of these awesome cards and like play them in my sideboard for when I really want to maximize on this effect. And the deck is still certainly a little below everything else in power level because you're monocolored. But that's about the only reason. 
Yeah, and it makes up for that for like it makes up for that with these insane synergy based draws where each card just transitions into the next so well that it oftentimes feels like you're playing a different format than standard. You can just lock your opponent out of a game and completely deny them any meaningful access to interact with you, to execute their game plan, to really do anything whatsoever when this deck is operating at its absolute apex. Now, granted, that doesn't happen every game, and you do play some games with some shitters, as this deck is affectionately known. But uh, you find ways through that. And that's an, that's another thing I've really fallen in love with about this deck is it has so much play to it. And sometimes it just makes you feel smart, which we all love. Let's be honest. You like to feel smart when you play Magic and you can find some really smart lines with this deck. I think the vast majority, and I'm talking like 80% of the games I lose with this deck and I have been playing a lot with this deck, uh, that 80% is just due to pilot error. I can totally buy that. And you go back and like think three turns later and you're like, oh, if I would just done this on this turn, I would be so much better off right now. It's crazy how things both snowball for you and against you with this deck. Yeah, every every single mana usage counts to the nth degree and it it all just cascades too. So if if you kind of mess up to the point where you're like taking an extra one damage on this turn, that turns into like an extra two damage on this turn and becomes, you know, you're you're losing while you just needed like another three damage to them or something, you know, like it all like the margins are very slim. It all kind of gets out of control. And that's generally in the games where you don't have your nut draw, you know, but mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the nut draw itself is just super weird because if you put Curious Obsession on a creature and protect it, you basically just end up countering like every spell that your opponent plays and eventually yep. killing them. So you're this, yeah, this weird howling mine plus counter spell deck that effectively turns into a prison deck. Yeah, and then you just like have this turn where you outsize anything they can do by evolving or adapting your Terramander. And now you also just have a 6-6 six, six or a 7-7 seven, because seven, it's been wearing Curious Obsessions all game. And I, I don't know, man. Some of the things you can do when you just have that turn one Terramander, turn two Curious Obsession, like it's not hard to put together a lot of spots from there where your opponent does not get to do anything. And I mean anything they do not get to play a spell they don't get anything on board it's crazy how efficiently that you can snowball just those two cards mono blue has by far the highest density of one mana cards in any deck in standard and it's not like you're playing a bunch of bad stuff necessarily there are cards like dive down and spell pierce and you can play up to I mean, 16, I guess, viable one-drop creatures if you wanted to. I would recommend anywhere from 8 to 11, somewhere in there. But you have so much one-mana interaction, either from playing blockers, threats, or protecting them. And then you have Curious Obsession, too. So your mana curve is just super low. It is very easy for you to like get ahead and just try and ride that. But we should note that, for sure, the weakness of this deck is that you don't have a lot of ways to interact with your opponent outside of the stack. And like you have flyers and creatures that can't be blocked and stuff like that. But like if they stick something like Rekindling Phoenix or whatever, you have Merfolk Trickster, and that's basically about it. Yeah, a resolved large flyer is often the death now. And like you said, there's play. There's things like Merfolk Trickster. We're going to get into sideboard options as well, where there are surprisingly a good number of options available to the mono blue deck, which is pretty shocking. I think in in most points through magic history, you'd be not working with a whole lot here, but there are options. But that being said, a resolved large flyer on the battlefield is 
a headache to be sure, be it rekindling Phoenix is kind of the nightmare, but even all the Drakes are problematic. And then there's something like Lyra, which can just completely shut down offense if you're not able to outsize it. So yeah, there's some, some real beatings available in the format. And thankfully, you have a lot of counterspells. So the things I'm talking about are fairly expensive and usually played in small quantities in decks. Again, I think the exception being Drake's, which we'll get into as we go through this kind of analysis we're going to do here. Yeah, so for kind of normal play patterns with this deck, I guess I would sort of describe it as a Delver-ish deck. Uh, Mm -hmm. Anyone who has played that sort of deck will be fairly familiar with the tempo feel of the archetype, but... Things are a little different where Delver had fewer threats. It was more of a protect the queen type of deck, whereas this deck, I think, for the most part, you can ride one creature for a little bit, but you're almost certainly never going to win a race with it. And at some point, you need to add like a Tempest Gin to the battlefield. And Terramander helps a lot with this because it can become a big threat. But unless you are actually able to put Curious Obsession on a one drop and then counter all the stuff they play, like eventually you'll need to play something else. So you do kind of end up in these situations where you're like going wide and uh, there are also situations where you can't necessarily afford to bluff a counter spell because your opponent just has to cast their stuff, you know, mm-hmm. especially if you ha- if you have a curious obsession on a creature. It's just like their clock is ticking. They just like if they play turn two wild growth walker, they have to just jam Jade Light Ranger on three. So if you don't have a counter spell, sometimes like you just have to like tap out and play stuff. It is different enough from Delver that I feel like it is kind of worth pointing it out where if if you're used to playing Delver or Tempo decks kind of in that nature, I think you'll be able to pick up this deck. And I played a lot of Delver. And like I said, I've been making a bunch of mistakes because this deck is just different enough. Right. One one of the cool things, though, that comes along with those mistakes, and I think one of the reasons why this deck is seeing particular success on arena right now. And if you're talking to anyone who's playing like high level mythic on arena, it's pretty much all about mono blue as it stands right now. Still a bunch of Esper, still mono red, but it feels like mono blue is the hotness right now in part due to Alexander Hain posting his mono blue list that he was holding rank one in mythic with, with, you know, I I'm not surprised to see him take that kind of success. First of all, just a tremendous player. Second of all, like I said, I think this is the best deck in standard. But one of the cool upsides you get from playing Mono Blue is that while it challenges you, it simultaneously challenges your opponents in a lot of spots. And if you're in a Very position true. where you think you have a skill edge, say you're you know a Pro Tour regular and you're about to go play an RPTQ next weekend, man, I have to really, really advise you look into this deck because this is one of the sweet rare decks that really feels like it's leveraging skill edges all across the battlefield. In in every game, it feels like there's a point where you can make a tricky play or find something to catch an opponent unaware. I've enjoyed finding those lines repeatedly. Oh, maybe I just haven't been trying very hard. I haven't found a ton of those lines. <laughs> okay. I think I think most of the opponents I've been playing against have been pretty good and the the cat's kinda out of the bag at this point. But I do agree that especially uh cards like Dive Down and Merfolk Trickster are the two where it's just like, oh yeah. You know, like you you just kind of put them into this uh damned if they do, damned if they don't scenario with a lot of your cards. And it's it's certainly very nice, and your your card quality is like a little bit lower compared to stuff like Saltai Midrange, Esper Control, whatever. But I agree that if you have a skill edge, this is definitely the best deck that you can use to leverage it. What's your favorite 
kind of card text you've negated with Merfolk Trickster thus far in your games with this deck? Oh man, I don't know. Uh, I mean, it against Adanto Vanguard is just a joke. It's mm-hmm. it's hilarious. Just being able to pick off a Llanowar Elves is great. I have eaten Enigma Drakes for sure. It would have been really good against Rekindling Phoenix had I ever drawn it, but the Rekindling Phoenix just held off like basically like my 15 power for a million turns and then I eventually died. I don't know. Right. What, what, what's your answer? Wild Growth Walker. Life gain off Wild Growth Walker in like a key spot mm. where I was racing. Uh, that that was it just felt really good like really satisfying to be like nope you're not gaining six this turn i'll just be winning the game thank you very much yeah i can't counter your thing right right more options that's the thing this deck has in spades and i guess that's a uh natural consequence of all your cards costing like one and two mana is you just have constant options true we should probably talk about how you think that this is the best deck in standard but like it, it isn't because it is the the best deck necessarily right like it is very much a metagame thing right absolutely i I think it's got a unique positioning right now so previously mono blue it didn't pick up all that much right like basically we're talking about two new cards here and there's some other ones that other people are playing which i generally don't like but the cards i do think were substantial adds to this deck were number one terramander and man is that a slam dunk ad it's just absolutely phenomenal and is a huge difference maker in the deck don't get me wrong but like it's still a one drop there were replacements for it previously and this deck did exist and the other one being essence capture which is basically an upgrade of essence scatter meaningful again and certainly an upgrade but not completely game breaking but what really has changed is one Fewer problematic cards being played against it. We mentioned Rekindling Phoenix, but also Goblin Chainwheeler is certainly down in metagame share. Even when Mono Red is super dominant, especially on Arena right now, it's moving away from Goblin Chainwheeler. I'm seeing more and more Goblin Chainwheelers in the sideboard or maybe not even in the deck whatsoever. So that's certainly a point in the deck's favor. But really, it's super exploitative in the way it targets these big spell decks. And the two that first come to mind are Esper and any kind of Nexus of Fate deck. If, if you haven't spell pierced a Nexus of Fate, you haven't lived. There's <laughs> nothing better than getting your opponent's seven mana card with your spell pierce. But to also add to that kind of group of big spell decks that are being targeted, I think actually Soltai falls under that banner as well. Even though it's more creature-based, again, you're still leveraging your essence captured, your wizard's retorts. The fact that they're playing five mana spells, six mana spells, or you know, eight, ten mana Crassus, it's very beneficial to be able to just spend your two mana, negate what they did for an entire turn, and keep leveraging the advantage you had on board because you have one drops and you have two drops where those decks are mostly playing tap lands. Right. Do you want to just get into the single card analysis? Because I think that you know, this is one of those decks where now we do have a lot of options, as we said, and there are a lot of heated debates going on. Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating to look at the differences in all these lists we've seen. And I think you can make a case for a lot of different cards, even though I do feel strongly about where I've ultimately fallen with my choices. I, I think there's arguments to be made against my configuration as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that is just the case in general, where depending on how you want the actual play pattern to be, depending on where you want percentages in certain matchups, like you can basically make an argument for a lot of different stuff. And this isn't like, you know, the, the white aggro decks where it's like, well, you kind of have to play 
X amount of one drops. Like is your two drop a Danto or Tide Taker or both? Like you have to play history. You kind of have to play Marshall. It's just like all of those cards are set in stone. Basically nothing is a sacred cow here. Right. And I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but having played a bunch with this setup, I'm convinced that there's something that looks a lot like this, but isn't just, you know, 19 to 21 basic islands and actually adds a color and gets away from Tempest Gin because even that card isn't essential. Like you can do other things in that slot if you really want to. And I think that area is completely unexplored. I really haven't seen anyone mess with those kind of setups whatsoever because Gin is just like this it's like this really blunt object, right? It's just a huge right. amount of power tacked on to this three mana body. But there's other things you could do in that spot, be it Thief of Sanity or I don't know. I would have to look at it more. And even I am guilty of not having explored other ways to take this archetype. But Same. there may be something there where you actually aren't relying on, on Tempest Jin whatsoever. And a lot of that is Terramander getting in the mix. Yeah, I mean, for the last week or so, I've mostly been, just been trying to figure out like the configuration of Mono Blue, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I'm sure that uh, going into Dallas and eventually like MC Cleveland, maybe the Mythic Invitational, stuff like that, like people will probably get percentage points by finding a, you know, good main deck configuration card or a good sideboard card or whatever from a different color. So I definitely agree with you there. Yeah. But yeah, for, first card, Terramander, I think is pretty obviously great. It's one mana, one, one flyer, which this deck would kind of happily consider playing at the very least. It makes you play things like Opt and Charter Course to some degree and encourages you to play fewer creatures because it itself is a big threat. So you don't necessarily need to go as wide. And I think overall, those are just benefits. I agree. I think that's actually what you want to do. Like Terramander tricks you into building your deck better, which is a fine feature to have. It's hard for me to imagine anyone who has put this card in their mono blue deck and come away saying, nope, not what I need. It's just so impactful to those late game situations. We talk a lot about tempo and racing and you can just set up so many things with Terramander in your deck that you would otherwise not have access to. I do think this was a significant difference maker in the overall power level of this deck. And it's a huge part of the reason why I'm a believer in this archetype now. Yeah, I definitely agree. And yeah, it, it tricking you into building your deck better is, is awesome. I think it is great. And magic could probably use more cards like that. And similarly to like, you know, people playing with Terramander and walking away from the, the game and saying like, Oh, this isn't what I wanted. It's like, I don't think that you play games with like Terramander and Opt and then you're like, oh, I don't want Opt in my deck, you know? Right. And look, despite the fact that there have been upgrades in card quality, this is still a deck that there is definite peaks and valleys, right? Like there's some cards that are kind of draft leftovers, shitters, if you will. And there's some <laughs> cards that are really high powered stuff. And the knock on this before was that it needed Curious Obsession or the deck just absolutely folded. And I think that was fair before. I don't think it's as fair now. But that being said, you still benefit a ton from having Curious Obsession. You definitely prefer to have it than not have it. So something like Opt just seems like, it seems like good magic to me. Good, smart magic. Maximize the games you're playing, the game plan you really want to play. Right. 
Uh, so the next card, basically everyone plays four copies of Simon Storm Tamer. It is a wizard for Wizards Retort and is a protection thing for either a Tempest Jin or an adapted Terramander or a creature with a curious obsession on it. So I don't really see a reason to get away from four copies of this card either because like eight is kind of the floor for one drops that you would want to play anyway. Yeah, I agree. Eight is the absolute floor. And I think Storm Tamer brings enough to the archetype that you're happy with it. Uh, anything weird that you've storm tamed that you can think of? No, nah, I mean, just just like, you know, countering things like uh, settle the wreckage is pretty normal. And uh, I, I guess you could, you know, counter expansion explosion unless they wanted to like target themselves with the fireball thing or whatever. But, you know, just them, even like them, like casting moment of craving on it and you being able to sack it is pretty nice. Yeah, it's mostly removal proofing your curious obsession wearer, and that's worth it. You're happy to play this card. And Wizard Synergy is something we'll talk about more and more as we move through, but turning on your Wizard's Retorts, it, it does matter. Again, it changes the games you can play. So I'm I have no interest in playing less than four Storm Tamers as it stands. Yep. Uh, the other one drop that shows up in a lot of people's lists is Miscloaked Herald, and Unblockable is better than flying in some instances, certainly, but it doesn't help with Wizard's Retort, so I don't think it's better than Storm Tamer, and I just don't think that it outclasses Terramander, so unless you are trying to play more one-drops, like you want more ways to turn on Charter Course, or you just want to have that consistency maybe be a little bit more aggressive. I, you can play Miss Cloak Herald. Uh, Alex Hain has three copies in his list. So I totally get that approach, but I'm not really sure where I stand on it exactly. Yeah, I've had my numbers for Herald kind of moving between three and zero over the past few days. Currently, I'm at zero. I have some problems with Herald in that so a lot of your cards feel like they scale really well. Like they change value as the game moves on and generally for the best. Like Terramander drawn on turn eight is usually a 5-5 five, five for two mana. And that's really great. And things like Tempest Jin scale throughout the game. Storm Tamers, you know, kind of just always very meaningful. Whereas Miscloaked Herald, I really, really want it early. I hate top decking it. It can only go in one direction. It can only really attack. It introduces some more vulnerability to things like Goblin Chain Whirler. So on the whole, I've been low on Herald. At first, I thought I was really into Charter Course, and I wanted to be able to leverage Charter Course and draw two cards. And while I still do like Charter Course, I've found it's not as important as I first believed to actually be generating card advantage from your Charter Course. It's more about card selection. And that realization has moved Miss Cloak Herald down in my estimation. Yeah, I could see that. I don't know. I, I still like the idea of playing a one drop and then basically kicking charter course on turn two like there are definitely games where you have excess resources like more so in the the pre-board games and the post-board games where it's like you have a spell pierce that doesn't line up against their deck or whatever so you don't mind actually just looting instead of the clean draw two. but i i do think that if you are going to play charter course having additional one drops is probably a good idea depending on how many charts you're playing i guess Okay. Currently, I, I'm at eight one drops, two charter course. Pretty comfortable with that. But I think if you're playing three charter course, there's a good argument for going up to, you know, somewhere in the range of 10, 11 one drops. It's possible maybe even I have too many charter course if I'm only going to stick with eight one drops. So I think those numbers are flexible and probably hard to pin down. There's, there's a lot of 
give and take. And I'd have to think about like, are there specific metagames that I want more of these numbers? And I'm still in the process of like falling in love with the deck, but I'm far from mastery. I don't have that kind of understanding of it yet. Whereas I think if you just like locked into this deck right now and you're like, I'm a mono blue person, maybe you could develop that kind of mastery where you see those really subtle shifts as the metagame evolves. Yeah. I I mean, I think stuff like Esper, if it is really big, one drop into Charter Course is basically the best start that you can have. Like, there are arguments for keeping open Spell Pierce for Thought Erasure and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Uh, or certainly if you have a Curious Obsession, uh, you probably want to hold on to protection for it and stuff. But I do think that Charter Course definitely would change depending on what the actual metagame looked like. I mean, if there are more decks that require you to do stuff with your mana early, then Charter Course basically just sits there for a while in your hand. And I don't really like that card, which that card at that point. Uh, so right. my, my initial list did not have chart, but now it just seems like there's a lot of Asper, there's a lot of Sultai, but certainly when RNA came out, it was just like, you can't play with chart, of course. Right. Right. So yeah, uh, the, the amount of one drops and, and whatnot is going to fluctuate. And I think that definitely changes the way you build the rest of the deck. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Next, next one drop is Benthic Biomancer which is a wizard. It is a ground creature. It has no evasion whatsoever, but it does help you with flood. It is a good combo with essence capture and Catlight, who has played the deck a lot said, still says that it's great. Like she, she played the list in where were we? Indianapolis. Right. Yeah. So my take on Biomancer is again, this feels super metagame dependent where battlefields are extremely bogged down where there's a ton of wild growth walker everywhere it just doesn't seem like this card's ever actually going to do anything meaningful if the game's being played more on the stack and there's less battlefield presence then i totally buy benthic biomancer and again i think like into an esper metagame i'm kind of inclined to do benthic biomancer stuff it feels really good there and all these synergies you're mentioning are very real you know turning on your wizard's retort on turn two is meaningful there's a bunch of little upside you get from biomancer but i think as it stands right now i'm not comfortable playing it due to the battlefields being more bogged down than that but i i believe in this card i've seen it do really powerful things i remember you and i commentated a match that cat was playing where it looked really really impressive and i I, I think she had the option to put a counter on it with Essence Capture and didn't even need to. Like there was actual better plays for her. But I, I've seen the card look impressive. I just don't think now is the time for Biomancer. Yeah, I agree. Although if we are talking about trying to play Miss Glotarold into Charter Course in an Esper metagame, like Biomancer basically just does the same thing. I mean, they're they're certainly mm-hmm. not going to play any blockers. But yeah, it is just so bad against Saltai and the like, you know, normally I, I just let the wild growth walkers resolve and I try and counter right. the explore creatures, you know? Yep. So uh, this thing is, is basically always going to be brick walled, which is why I don't like it uh, in this deck specifically. I do think it's a strong card just like you do though. Yep. Uh, next up, Merfolk Trickster. Uh, one of the few two drops that this deck typically plays. Sometimes people branch out into other stuff, but this card for the most part is a four of which, uh, again, it's kind of weird because it's just like this little ground creature, but it having flash is nice so that you can hold open counter magic or dive downs or whatever and still be able to do something. You can uh, also just use it to tap a blocker to get this in for two points. It does a lot of cool stuff with its like remove all text ability. It's a wizard. Uh, what else did I miss? 
Uh, I mean, I think you got most of it, but it feels like this card does everything in this deck. And that's why it's here is that like Jack of all trades, master of none, essentially, you can get a little bit of everything you need out of trickster and its ability to just be cast as a two, two flash bear is actually super, super impactful. And one of the modes I find myself using more and more and just like finding when that two damage matters a bunch and then winning the race six turns later because you got in that two damage in a certain spot. That's something that comes up the more and more I play with this deck. So it's probably the hardest card to use in the deck. I think that's fair to say, but you can't really leave home without it. I've never wanted less than four tricksters, although I do often sideboard some number out. Same. I, I think four is the baseline and you're not playing less. Yep. Uh, the next card that a lot of people play in the two drop slot, I think the most popular one anyway, is like Warkite Marauder, which in theory is uh, good against Drakes and Rekindling Phoenix and stuff like that. But it, the 2 1 body is just not very impressive. And it's another card that just makes you weak to Chain Whirler. Yeah. Getting your two drop blown up by Chain Whirler is just gross. And I'm not quite as convinced that it's meaningful against drakes like i think it's fine i don't think it's actually changing the matchup whatsoever and it just dies to everything out of that deck anyway so i i've passed on war kite marauder thus far i think my very first builds had one copy never really mattered and i'm basically over it at this point there's another two drop that if i'm playing additional two drops beyond trickster i'm a lot more interested in yep and that is surge mare i hope yes it is Tell me about Surge Mare. So Surge Mare is this weird card where you can see what it does, right? It's very clear that it has a well-defined role against, you know, opposing aggressive decks. It brick walls mono red very effectively. It can block in a bunch of other matchups. But what was so surprising to me is how just effective it was against the Sultai decks and using it as just an unblockable creature and how much that mattered. And then I realized like, well, who do I actually hate this card against? Because it's fine versus Esper. You're not over the moon about it, but you can make it work. And it carries a Curious Obsession so well. Like it's one of my favorite things to have going is to search Mary with Curious Obsession on it. You get so much card selection that you're just able to sculpt whatever you want out of your hand. So I actually have two copies of Surge Mare in my main deck now, which seems weird. I mean, like you look at this text and you're like, oh, this is a card designed to hate very specific things. But I've been happy with it as a main deck inclusion. It's a little clunky. Having your two drop have to be cast at sorcery speed is awkward for this deck. You can usually get away with casting a one drop at sorcery speed, but usually want your more expensive non-gin spells to be flash like trickster. But you can make it work and you can play around it. And sometimes you play it on turn three and you're happy with that and your holding spell pierce up. So your mana matters a lot. And obviously the base mode of Surge Mare to get damage out of it, you have to spend some mana that can be problematic, but I think the good outweighs the bad. And I've been happy with a couple copies in my main deck. Yeah, I have two. The list that I posted on our Patreon leading into SCG Indie, like I, I, Mono Blue was one of the decks I recommended, and I had two copies of Surge Mare main deck, basically for all the stuff that you said, where it is effectively a main deck hate card against red and green. It does have the issues that the other ground creatures have, except the matchups where the ground gets locked up, they they just have like all green creatures. So it's effectively unblockable anyway. Mm-hmm. And the the play pattern of just like you play it and then it kind of like holds the ground and it's probably like another turn for you to get set up and then you hit them, pump it once, hit them, pump it once, and then you start, you start hitting them and like pumping it multiple times and it can just clock them very fast. And with dive down, you can even just like fireball them basically. And 
Yeah, I, I like that interaction a lot. Yeah, because there a lot of the time they're just like, all right, I know you have a dive down, so I'm just not going to walk into this. I'm not going to give you a favorable trade, let you put a card in your graveyard for Terramander and stuff like that. So you just end up with like a dive down at the end of the game while they're tapping out for some nonsense like Hydroid Crassus or whatever, and then you just get a big hit in. Mm-hmm. It's happened many times for me, more, way more than I thought. And that's another reason why Surge Mare has just gone up in my estimation. Yeah, so so pretty versatile overall. I do think it's similar to Charter Course where like you can't afford too many cards that just like spin your wheels like our mana sinks. But I do think that Surge Mare and Charter Course in low numbers is completely reasonable. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. And if you play on Arena... I've had to do this where for for the first few matches, I was just like, yeah, whatever. I had the like automatically stack triggers thing on. Yep. So it would have me loot and then draw a card off Curious Obsession. And at, there was a certain point where I was just like, okay, this is really important. I need to turn this off and stack my triggers so that I draw first. But Arena's going to try and get you, so don't let it. Yeah, this this was the deck that finally had me uncheck that box. And it was that interaction. I'm like, no, this just is not working for me anymore. And I even like tried to tough it out at one point, and then it cost me in a spot. And I'm like, okay, now I'm just <laughs> yeah. manually stacking my triggers. Yep. Uh, the next card is Tempest Gin, which I think people think is like one of the reasons behind Curious Obsession to play this deck. And I don't know, Tempest Jin's very powerful, but for the most part, you're not just jamming it on turn three because it's too easy to just answer right off the bat. So then it's like, oh, I got to wait a turn to have them from protection. And uh, sometimes you get caught with like multiples of these in your hand and they're just like slow and clunky. And I totally think that the deck could be reworked without them. I think that you can shave one, uh, especially if you're only playing 19 land, but Obviously, this is like pound for pound the strongest card in the deck in a vacuum. I know. I don't want to like talk bad about the card because it's the train. It's the one that runs away with games because you have a 6-4 gin and it's just there's nothing your opponent can do. You protect it and that's the end of the game. But it's clunky and it's inelegant, whereas the rest of the deck feels like this, you know, well-honed knife. This is just a blunt object that you're smashing your opponent with. And I think one of the things that has gotten more obvious to me as I've played more is that especially in post-board games, there's lots of spots where you can have fewer gins in your deck. And I'm not sure everyone's on board with that. Like I, I looked through Alexander Haynes' sideboard guide. And if you go follow Alex on Twitter, he posted his blue list along with a full sideboarding guide uh, that he used to reach rank one mythic. And I don't believe he ever boards out Tempest Jin in any of his plans. And I know your plans, uh, you like boarding out Jin in a lot of spots. And I agree with you. I've found when I'm trying to play that more fish-like controlling role, essentially if my search for Azkanta is coming in, it's probable I don't want to spend three mana in my main phase to play Tempest Jin. I'm willing to put together my damage from other sources. I'm willing to lean on my Terramander and upgrade it as the game goes on much more than I want to tap three mana at any point. It's like it can be safe on the play on turn three and you're pretty okay with it, but then you're just vulnerable because you've not left up dive down to protect it. And by the time you get to turn four, you can start getting punished really hard. So I'm kind of off gin in a lot of spots, even though I do believe it's a super powerful card. I just think there's plans where you're better off not having it in your deck. Yeah, and you're playing a low land count. There's certainly no guarantee that you even hit land three on three, let alone have four mana on turn four. 
Right. And a lot of spots, you're happy with that. You're happy ha- only having drawn two lands because you just have tons of one mana interaction and you can leverage it better without a ton of lands in your hand. So again, that's these experiences are what brought me to the realization that like, I don't think this is the best version of this blue tempo deck. I think there may be something else out there. And maybe that's my project for the next week where I'm just like, what else can I do with this kind of setup? Because I, I think there might be something else. I think I broke it. What if we cut Tempest Gin at eight red duels and light up the stage? Maybe. I, I think I probably have to get back to Miss Cloak Herald in that spot. You have to ensure oh, yeah. that yeah, yeah. damage. There's going to be some clunky spots though with like 11 islands, eight duels. And I don't know, maybe you could play like a mountain. But it could it could be good enough. But like I said, a lot of times it doesn't feel like you need more cards. You're just gonna like find the right stuff anyway. Also, yeah, Light of the Stage has the problem where you want to like you kind of have to proactively spend your mana with Light of the Stage. It's hard to hold up counter magic when you're pulling that off the top of your deck. Although it being a time walk isn't the worst consequence. Like you're pretty happy no. just showing your opponent the retort and being like, you can't do anything this turn. Right. I mean, it, I mean, it's basically like they cast the thing and you retorted it at that point, you know, like pretty much. They still, yeah. have, they still have the card in their hand, but it it doesn't matter if they're just literally not doing anything on their turn. I mean, you would take that for sure. Yeah. I mean, maybe I think there's a ton of stuff to check out with this kind of setup. All right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to get brewing. You want to awesome. finish this podcast by yourself? <laughs> just me solo on mono blue shitters <laughs> for an hour. <laughs> I probably could at this point. I've played it so much, but I I think it's better if you stick around. That would be just performance art at its finest, you know, just Brian talking into the void about his (laughs) mono blue $10 deck. Uh, I I hope it doesn't come to that. (laughs) I'm just talking to hear myself talk. Stay with me, Jerry. Don't leave me. All right. Uh, Well, I mean, we have to talk about Sphinx of Foresight and how bad it is and why the hell do we, we play this? Do we have to talk about it? I don't know. I, like I've seen copies and people are playing it. Uh, this card is like, it's the ultimate trap, right? Because you don't know how good it is when you first see it. You're like, what is this card? I've never seen anything like this. Well, it's bad. And four mana is like a billion. I mean, if Tempest Gin is a card, you're like, I'm not sure if I should be playing this. You certainly should not be playing Sphinx of Foresight. And I get it. Your hands with Curious... Curious Obsession are better than those without, but you don't have to go this far. This deck is more powerful than that now. I mean, maybe like old versions would have benefited from doing something like this, but this deck is good now. Don't don't rely on gimmicks like Sphinx of Foresight. Yeah, I mean, if if you wanted to play a deck that tapped out for Tempest Gin and then ta- tapped out for Sphinx of Foresight or whatever, like that would be a deck, but it's not this deck. Mm-hmm. So onto the spells, we have Curious Obsession, which I think is pretty safe to say that this deck probably would not exist without this card. Uh, you could do tempo-y things for sure, just like creatures and counter spells, because obviously this deck can win games when it doesn't draw Curious Obsession. It's just games where you... Ha- I, I'd be curious to see the actual stats on this, where like games you have Curious Obsession in your opener versus not, and like what the win percentage difference is, because I'm sure it's like you, know, you win 70% of the games you have it and win 30% of the games you don't or something. I don't know if it goes that far, but there's there's a difference for sure. And you know maybe it's closer to like, 60 40 or or maybe it is that far because this is an incredibly incredibly powerful spell and this deck is just set up to leverage it to the extreme like if you remember the old i think we were calling them like heroic decks or something what, what were, right what were those decks called that uh propped yeah, up just, around just white blue heroic like you right. would put or- ordeal of thassa on a thing protected with god's willing and that was it right and you, you had to like treasure cruise at the top end too 
Right, right, right. Yeah, so this is like that on steroids. And that deck pretty much only existed because of Curious Obsession. I don't think you go this far. Like there, there would be something here in the absence of Curious Obsession. It probably wouldn't be tier one, though. It would be like this goofy, you know, also ran in the format that maybe preyed on one or two decks. Right, which is effectively what this deck was before. Right. But now it has actual good cards, and Curious Obsession is among the best of them because it does set up those scenarios where you're drawing two cards a turn and you just have a counter spell open, and your opponents in the early game in standard effectively only cast one spell per turn. And like that is basically why this deck is able to thrive and perform well. Absolutely. And I love how it makes your spells disposable. Like when you have a good Curious Obsession going and you can just throw away chump blockers, like you don't even care. I remember I had a game where I chump blocked uh, Night of Autumn for like five turns, just throwing one ones in front of it off my Curious Obsession fueled Terramander. And it just didn't matter. It didn't matter at all because you have so many resources to just throw them away like that. You know what does matter? The fact that your opponent had a 4-3 Knight of Autumn on the battlefield and you had a Curious Obsession curious obsession attacking them. Maybe they should have waited. I think I played it after, but you're right. They they certainly misplayed by not just sitting on the Knight of Autumn. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. Okay. Uh, Opt, we sort of talked about in combination with Terramander, but just the fact that you get to pass the turn with a dive down and then still spend your mana to do something, Opt, Helps you hit your curve, hit your land drops, allows you to play a low land count so you don't flood out. I mean, Optus is sort of like the glue for this deck. Yeah, I think we've learned the lesson now, just like cantrips matter in this style of deck. It's something we, if you go back to the fairies era, it's something we definitely didn't understand then because we weren't playing like four ponder in our fairies deck, which went insane off of turn two bitter blossom. And now I think we've understand this, we've understood this style of deck much better as time has gone on. And it relies on some cantrip glue to hold everything together and to give you options on multiple turns and to find your best cards. And Op's going to do all that. I don't really buy into any version of this deck, which doesn't play four copies. Yep. Uh, Dive Down is the best protection spell you could possibly have. Frankly, I'm surprised this card exists because of how effective it is as a counter spell in the types of standard formats that they're uh, trying to shape and just you know, hope that the people end up playing where it's like, you know, you play some good creatures, you play some good removal spells. And this is just counter spell for one mana in a lot of different scenarios. Like your, your Tempest Gin gets to eat their Lyra with this card, you know? Yeah. That's a wild, wild interaction. This card does a lot. I mean, protecting you from things like cry of the Cranarium and fine finality also matters a bunch where you should have, you know, virtually no recompense to a card like that. You now have dive down. And I think figuring out the numbers, on dive down is tricky. There's certainly diminishing returns. Like you certainly want your first one in the game. Sometimes you want the second one. The third one is often just plugging up your hand. But as we get to, you know, things like charter course and having options and just the sheer card quantity that you may have access to with things like curious obsession, I've fallen in at three dive downs. Even when I draw multiples, you can usually find a use for it. And it just does so much in this deck. A lot of the, the decks now are just sort of removal light. So I can see playing fewer copies of this, but I do think that one of the things that drove this deck forward as a contender was I think Nassif taking the like two stock dive downs and he just jammed four. He was just like, this mm-hmm. is the best card, you know? And I, I think at the time it was, but uh, Alex is playing two copies. I don't think I could justify going that low, but I do think that three is fine. 
Yeah, that's where I am sitting presently. But when you get to connect with this card, it is it's the biggest tempo swing imaginable, and, and oh, yeah. it's just super versatile too. Mm-hmm. So uh, spell pierce is like the other card that people play in this one mana protection slot. It does line up well against most decks, and uh, spell pierce kind of similar out of is it Drake's? Even though the Saltai decks are primarily creatures, it is a card that just tags Vivian Reed, but. Uh, we might get into this a little bit more later. I actually think the best sideboard plan for Salta is to take out their Vivians against you just because you don't want any clunky cards. Uh, yeah, because you're so good at punishing any large expenditures of mana. That's not the axis that other decks should fight you on. And Spell Pierce is that to the nth degree. Every deck has a card that you're pretty happy to grab with Spell Pierce, even if there aren't multiple. Certainly, there's times where you're going to decrease the number of Spell Pierce in your deck. A lot of times, I think there's variable play draw patterns where you'd rather have either your Wizard's Retort or Spell Pierce when you don't want to be super counter spell heavy and you make those moves back and forth. But as far as the main deck goes, I've been happy with three copies. You generally find use for it. Again, the whole card quantity, card selection thing comes into play. You get to mitigate drawing a bunch where they're super dead. And three is my number for now. I can see that changing based on metagame again. Yeah. Next card is Charter Course, which is kind of awkward in the deck because it's tempo negative, sort of... uh, Kind of similarly to Tempest Gin, even though it adds a body to the battlefield where it's like you're spending a lot of mana at sorcery speed to not necessarily accomplish much. Like what you typically want to be doing is like pushing the advantage that you already have. And Charter Course kind of helps do this, uh, especially if you have like four or five mana where you do get to push that advantage because you find like a card to play that is cheap that actually does affect the board versus you know, just having basically nothing to do on those turns. So mm-hmm. I don't know, you've seen, you've seen Charter Course be able to like fix people's hands in Is It Drake's and again, help you function with a low land count and everything, but it's, it's not free. It's not like a hundred percent. It belongs in this deck, but uh, I do think that it is a very solid role player. Yeah. I think you made a really salient point about like the best Charter Course that you can cast in this deck is the one cast on turn four or five for the most part. like it, It's not as much a turn two card as it was in other decks. But on turn two, should you have an awkward draw or a clunky hand, it can still do the job of hopefully mitigating either flood or screw whatever you're experiencing at the time. So two copies for me presently. I can see arguments on both sides. And I think it's about what game plans you're playing, how you are approaching matchups individually. Like, Are you trading resources aggressively in certain matchups? All those things come into play when you're contemplating the number of chart, of course, you should play. For me, the correct number has been two. I could see that changing based on other cards I'm including. Yeah, I'm I'm basically with you. I think two is fine. I tend to shy away from these effects a little bit more because maybe I overvalue the game states that happen where I am behind. Like, I don't feel like if I go into a tournament, you know, I'm just going to have infinite time to like sit here and cast like these card drawing spells that don't do anything. Mm-hmm. And again, if the metagame is like all Esper or whatever, hey, Charter Course is great, but it's not. And I think that people are going to be trying to kill you, especially as this deck picks up. Uh, people are going to be turning to things like White Aggro, which is by far the deck's matchup and or the deck's worst matchup. And you're not going to be able to afford to play cards like Charter Course anymore. But I do think that two is good for now. It'll probably become one and then zero before it ever goes up to three. Right. 
Essence Capture is a new pickup. Uh, it didn't seem like it would be that much stronger than Essence Scatter, but it is. Sizing matters. And that's one of the things I'm finding a lot is just being able to find that extra point of toughness often makes a very large difference. And, you know, in the late game, Curious Obsession often means much more for the plus one plus one than the card drawing bonus, which is kind of obvious, you know, once you're trying to close out a game. But getting access to that boost is very nice. And the most problematic cards are often creatures, things like Lyra, Rekindling Phoenix, Niv-Mizzet. This doesn't do any good there, but those big bodies are generally what slows down your offense, what can totally brick wall you. Here's an answer. It's a clean answer, and it's one that has a bonus stapled onto it. So I've been happy with Essence Capture. Uh, I think you could go anywhere from two copies to zero copies of Essence Capture and maybe not be incorrect. Personally, I'm playing two. Just because of those reasons, the, the best spells against you are mostly creatures. I want to have a reason to play four of this card. Just like the fact that it increases your clock, I think, is also pretty huge. I mean, it's like two mana Doom Blade, and then also deals your opponent three damage or whatever, in addition to however <laughs> the, the battlefield changes with sizing and everything. So uh, it, has, it has been incredible for me. Like all, one of the best cards against Sultai because they'll try and like Hostage Taker you or Ravenous Chupacabra you. They try and uh, assemble like these big Wild Growth Walkers and stuff. And just countering their Jade Light Ranger when they have like a Wild Growth or two is incredible. Mm-hmm. Made this mistake at least once. Be careful with Terramander. Uh, it only adapts if it doesn't have any counters on it. And right. yeah, yeah, kind of the rules. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> those, those are the rules. So it's like it's it's kind of a good thing because there are certain things like Benthic Biomancer that trigger when you put counters on them. But I've definitely had like turn one Terramander, turn two Essence Capture, and I'm just like, nah, <laughs> <laughs> just pass. Yeah, yeah. Uh, other option is Quench, which. I originally thought it was just unplayable, like it did not seem very good, but I've actually been reasonably happy with this, especially since you are an aggressive deck and you are doing a lot of things to just choke people's mana a lot of the time, and they don't have two mana lying around very much because they just have they're forced to be doing things against you. So quench for me, at least in small numbers, has just kind of felt like counterspell. I haven't hated quenches when I've played them. I think like it's a question of power versus versatility, which is always a difficult assessment to make. Presently, I don't have Quench in my deck, but it's like, it's fine. It does the job. Like you mentioned, the, the key turns for this deck are early. Like you mostly care about what is happening early in the game. If you get to the late game, you've found ways to mitigate the dead Quench in your hand. You've pitched it to chart, of course. You have so many other cards, it doesn't matter. I guess you could make the argument that like this is a way worse card when playing from behind. If you do get into those spots where the games go long, you'd rather probably have something like Essence Capture. But you don't want to get into those spots, and Quench helps you avoid those spots with the games going long. So I think it's an interesting balancing act. I've passed on it presently, but I don't don't hate Quench. I don't think you're making a mistake by playing it. When the metagame has decks that are not just all creatures, I think you can make a reasonable uh, call for like, you know, one quench instead of the third essence capture or whatever. And it's, it's basically for versatility because you really do want to be interacting with your opponent at all times. And there are games where you draw like, 
too many dive downs, too many spell pierces, too many essence captures, right? And it's like all things that line up in very specific spots, whereas Quench is just kind of like this all-purpose card that is not specifically great against anything, but it does kind of bridge the gap between the various answers that you have. So mm-hmm. it it basically depends on how many sort of interaction cards you want to play, whether or not you would want to play Quench or not. I, I think it's like, you know, if you're playing like four dive down, three spell pierce, four retorts, and three other two mana counter spells or something, or even like two at that point, I think it's pretty reasonable to just say like those should be quenches because you already have too many narrow cards. Okay. Uh, other counter spells, Wizards Retort. Basically, everyone plays four copies of these. It is actual counter spell in a lot of spots because you have eight wizards and you can increase that count too. But uh, it is kind of awkward post board in some situations because people are like killing your wizards. They're getting ahead on the battlefield and everything. Having actual cancel is not great necessarily. Yeah, I, I think this is just one of the cards where it is good against every single card type. It is a little slow and a little clunky, but if the game gets to that spot where you have a curious obsession going, like this is the card you want. Yeah, I can't imagine playing less than four copies. Man, does it feel good to cast actual counterspell again. I've I've missed that feeling. The two mana to invalidate whatever your opponent may be up to short of something like Nib Visit. It's one of the reasons to play the deck in my eyes. And I do think the point about wizard numbers is very valid i think it's something that maybe isn't considered enough in some sideboard plans it's one of the reasons why i'm interested in some sideboard cards that maybe i haven't seen anywhere else just keeping that count safe where i get the bonus mode but it's not completely unplayable in the absence of it it's just harder to meaningfully advance your board presence when you have to hold up three mana instead of two so I guess games where you're like snowballing, you won't really feel the pinch of not having wizards anyway in most instances, but obviously be conscientious of it. Don't go too low on your wizards where you're leaning very hard on the retort. Yep. Agreed. Uh, Another option that some people are considering, and basically I've only seen this pop up lately is lookouts dispersal, which is uh, two U instant counter target spell, unless it's controller pays four and it costs one less if you control a pirate. So pirates in the deck are Siren Storm Tamer, Warkite Marauder, if you're even playing that, and that's it, right? Yeah, and I guess like in the abstract, I don't think Lookout's Dispersal is heinous or anything. The problem is you're forcing me to play for Warkite Marauder, which I actually do think is heinous. So I'm just not interested in this card as it stands. Uh, I don't think just relying on Force Storm Tamer to turn it on is good enough. And I think that in the absence of the discount, the card just isn't great. I'd rather have Quench in most spots. So passing on Lookout's Dispersal, maybe there'll be another pirate in the future where I'll change my mind. I doubt it, though. There's not really many pirates on other planes besides Ixalan. Yeah, and how many Wizards Retorts effectively do you actually want, you know? Yeah, you have to draw the line somewhere. So the rest of the deck is generally comprised of 19 to 21 islands. I think 21 was basically the amount that people played when they had four Tempest Gin and no ops. 19 is what Alex has been playing on Arena, and I think you can make an argument for it in real life also, especially if you have like Biomancer, Charter Course, stuff like that, that allows you to loot. I think that I have been tw- comfortable with 20, but that does mean that you're you're flooding out like a little bit, actually. So I don't know. This is a, a thing that could change with 
the actual composition of my main deck and everything. And there are certainly sideboard plans where I would want to take out a land or add a land or whatever. So it, it will vary. Yeah, playing 19 presently, I will say that I think that might be problematic with the three entrancing melodies I have in my sideboard. That's really the card where I'm like, "Uh, maybe I should have 20 islands in my deck. As far as main deck play, though, I'm pretty happy with the 19 number. So I don't know where I'm ultimately... It feels like I want like 19 and a half, honestly. So I don't know where I'm ultimately going to fall on that. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, if you're playing best of three on arena oh, are you yeah you're you're not getting correction right that is true so alex played best of one up to diamond and he played best of three the rest of the way so okay. i don't know if his if his mana base was altered as a result of that but yeah best of three they do not give you like the hand shaping algorithm thingy yeah I've, I've only been playing best of three and have been happy with 19 except for that one circumstance i'm mentioning it feels like my entrancing melodies have occasionally been one mana short you know, you ha- you have to consider that trade off for sure, and I do think Entrancing Melody is an incredibly important sideboard card. But I think we're going to get to that in just a moment. Oh yeah, I mean, we could just start there. So we're going to the sideboard anyway, and yeah, the, the, I mean, tell me about Entrancing Melody. What are you actually using this card against? I bring it in against Sultai. Anything playing Crassus? Well, I, I, w- I shouldn't say anything. If you're like Nexus of Gates or you know a deck like that, I'm I'm not bringing in Entrancing Melody, but. Being able to take Crassus for four mana is really sweet. You often take like wild growth walkers too in some spots. So I've been very happy there. I think it's totally fine against like the white aggro decks. You know, sometimes you get to take like a Benelish Marshall and be very happy. There's things like Adanto Vanguard where you don't have your Merfolk Trickster in that spot and you're happy to take the Vanguard. So it's it's totally fine there. And I think it's good against red too. Just taking a creature and two for winning them is worthwhile. So I think there's a lot of matchups where Melody matters. And it's probably actually your best card against something like Sultai, which is very reliant on its Crassus to basically stem your air force. They can't block unless they're playing Crassus. So taking their Crassus is often lights out. So I agree with that. I do think that there are games where you can just attack around Crassus because again, if you're if you're oh, pressuring yeah. them, you have a reasonable draw, like they're not gonna be able to play it for six or whatever, where it definitely blocks all of your stuff. Mm-hmm. And by the time they play Crassus for four, you can generally have like a Terramander or something, maybe you have a Surge Mare going. I don't really want to flood on melodies because a lot of my plans involve just countering the explore creatures. And obviously that doesn't line up every single time. So I do want to have some outs like a giant wild growth walker. Cause that thing will kill you pretty quick, especially after it gains oh, yeah. them some life. So a- having a couple copies I think is good, but I, I, I tried three and I wasn't really liking it. There was a couple situations where like resolved hostage taker kind of like, screwed me pretty badly too where mm-hmm. they got to you know cast cast my tempest gin or whatever and just like have this big flying blocker and it's like i guess if i could have like melodied the hostage taker maybe that would have been okay too but i don't think that's a good reason to play the card yeah that's it's very mana intensive well so i mean we can move on to some of the other removal options we may as well talk down that path since we're you know already exploring that with entrancing melody what other removal spells have you relied on from your sideboard uh, honestly, it has mostly just been that. I mean, it, it's that and essence capture because against the vast majority of creatures, I would rather uh, just counter them outright than try and steal them. But there are things like the is it Drake's deck where it's like they have twelve threats that you have to deal with, and they have spell pierce and stuff, so you can't necessarily always essence capture them. So you need some outs, and 
melody isn't necessarily great for them. So one of the things that Alex was playing that I liked was Deep Freeze, where it's a good answer to the Drakes and a good answer to Niv Mizzet, which basically just KOs you. I mean, oh yeah, you can't really do a whole lot to stop it. It does block your stuff and you are clocking your opponent, but you're not necessarily like goldfishing them on turn six every game, especially if they're playing Niv Mizzet. They probably have a bunch of like counter spells and removal. Yeah, if they play Niv Mizzet, like you just like have to have the trickster in that spot, or you're probably going to lose. I had a really funny game where like I was playing against Grixis Control, and this was a straight misclick. Like I submitted 61 cards because I didn't realize I had clicked on my one of Deep Freeze in my sideboard. Oh, and then wow. my opponent then my opponent played Niv Mizzet and I had the Deep Freeze in hand. So that was a, a real life eye opener. Yeah, zero outer. It was it was very nice. So that was a real eye-opener in terms of what Deep Freeze could potentially answer. I think it's good. Is it the best option? I mean, Entrancing Melody is probably the best option. And the thing about Deep Freeze is that it does a nice job of answering that one threat. But what if I told you you could answer up to three threats? Would you be interested in such a card? I am interested in the transmogrifying wand. I am. Okay. Okay. I, I've liked transmogrifying wand. Like I said, one of the biggest problems for this deck is a large flyer. And like you said, Drake's throws a whole bunch of those large flyers at you. It's got seemingly endless amounts of large flyers that it's using to uh, brick wall your aerial assault. And I've been happy with transmogrifying wand in that spot. I only play one. I don't think you can go too much further than that. I mean, maybe you could play two if you're a real believer in the wand, but that one copy has certainly turned around a bunch of games for me, and it's really difficult for Drake's to beat. Yeah, one one of the most common matchups I've been losing is Drake's. So I don't know if you found that too, but it seems really, really difficult to me. Yes, I agree. So yeah, I, I am down to try the wand. I also did not have deep freeze before. I was like trying to bring in a couple of entrancing melodies against them because you can get their terramanders and maybe get their enigma drakes. But it was like I could never resolve a melody on a drake through spell pierce and dive down. I just couldn't. Yeah, and transmogrifying wand, you get to use your mana more proactively. Find a spot where you just know you're going to stick it, and then leverage it in future turns. And I've I have been able to do so. Um, obviously with only one copy, it's not like I draw it a ton, but the few times I have drawn it, it's, it's done the job and I've been happy with it. Yeah. It sounds great to me. And I'm also interested in the deep freezes to some degree, but if it is like, oh, I just want to play two copies of a card like this and it's mostly for Drake's, then, uh, it's possible. I just play two wands just to try them and make sure I draw them, but I assume it's going to be great. I think that's a good strategy at first and kind of something I wish I did is you just won't get that many opportunities to try it out if you don't have at least two copies in your deck, right? You're kind of just hoping to get lucky and and feel it. And maybe that'll tell you, yes, this is so impactful that it's worth having the second copy in my sideboard. Yeah. I mean, maybe you just draw both and it's like you just feel like you can't possibly lose, which is probably what happens, honestly. I mean, maybe. maybe you die to the oxes or whatever, but I feel like a lot of the charges are going to be used, you know, just trading with like dive downs and stuff. You know, it's not like they're going to end up with six oxes at the end of it. Yeah. And, and that's the thing about wand is that because of the oxes, you can only use it from like reasonable positions. It'll never stem aggression successfully. Whereas deep freeze can do that job. If you're on the back foot, it can catch you back up. I think it's much harder for transmogrifying Juan to do that. What it does do a better job of is letting you maintain your aggression once you've established it. Yeah, it's, it's basically just like clearing blockers, which mm-hmm. is a, a lot of the time what I want. 
So yeah, and in most instances, if the early game has gone well, that's what you're interested in. Yeah. Uh, another option is Exclusion Mage, which uh, is a wizard, so that matters. Uh, it's a, a three mana sorcery spell, so it has all the same problems that we talked about with Tempest Gin. I think it is slightly better in. You know, these post-board games where you're probably not as reactionary, like you don't have the spell pierces against creature decks, you might not have all the wizard's retorts and everything, so you don't necessarily mind tapping out for this thing. But it's it's a temporary answer. The 2-2 ground body isn't super huge, uh, but it is one of the best things that you can do to answer Rekindling Phoenix because, like, the, the wand doesn't really help unless you're actually going to do something about the egg, too. Right. Yeah. Wand is not solving that problem. I'll say I also like Mage in the Mirror quite a bit, which is becoming more and more important. Like it's fine to clear off Curious Obsessions. Granted, you have to get through any kind of dive down nonsense. That's always going to be a problem in the mirror, but you kind of need to wear them out and just get through the dive downs. I, I mean, maybe there's a better way to play the mirror than even interacting on that axis, but I haven't found it yet. I don't know if you have any broken mirror strategies to impart upon us. But uh, I, I really don't have anything that feels next level or anything. I mean, for me, it has basically just been don't blink first. Like, if they play a one drop and you're on the draw, like, you basically can't play a one drop. Like, you need to hold them and spell pierce to counter their curious obsession. You know, you you just basically can't let any of their, their good stuff happen because it snowballs so quickly and you'll just lose. And once you're behind, all of your cards are so bad. So how do you recapture the front foot then? Like, how do you get back on the aggressive side when you've taken that defensive posture? Well, I mean, ideally you're just, you know, countering their best cards and everything. And eventually you'll slip through like a Terramander and just protect that. And then you'll be able to have like this five, five or whatever. Right. But I, I, I mean, I think you can like take a few hits from their one drop for a little bit and then stop their, their powerful stuff from happening. And then you start playing your powerful stuff and just make sure that, you know, you're, playing your Tempest Gins with like Spell Pierce mana or Counterspell mana open or whatever, uh, and just not exposing it, not letting them get favorable trades. But obviously that's not something that you can do all of the time. And sometimes you are just like, oh, I got to just jam this gin and hope it's good, you know? Right, right. Yeah, I think there's a lot of spots where you're just, again, like you said, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yep, exactly. I mean, especially when you're on the draw and every mana is so important. Yep. Uh, next card for interaction is sleep, which I think is primarily used against white aggressive decks. And it is, it's kind of like your last ditch effort because that matchup's so bad. You have no real good way of, uh, clearing wide boards or anything, but like people have also brought in against me when I'm playing salt eye, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. No, that seems like a white card only to me. I agree with you. And I don't hate anyone for trying this. I do think that matchup is pretty awful. And again, I don't have any real secrets, although Hain seems to like Fairy Duelist. And that's a card I've heard other people say has overperformed for them. Honestly, since I have put Fairy Duelist in my sideboard to try it out, I haven't been paired against white decks. So I can't really give an assessment of how good it is. I could I could buy it. Like it seems like it's a lot of spots where it'll get you a two for one, but it's also kind of low impact at the same time. And it, the matchup feels so slanted in the favor of the white decks. I'm not sure Fairy Duelist is going to do enough to bring it back to your favor. Yeah, I don't think so either. I mean, Fairy Duelist does have more cross matchup applications, but it also seems like, kind of like you said, the matchup's so bad where having just a Fairy Duelist and getting like that nice clean two for one isn't going to do anything. It's not going to sway the matchup in your favor suddenly. So I'm skeptical. 
I guess I would mention that the default mode of white aggro presently is Azorius. And so if they wanted to have like spell pierce in post-board games, they probably could. I'm not 100% sure they should. Although now that I think about it, like if you're bringing in your entrancing melodies and all these effects, and especially if you start talking sleep, they probably should have spell pierce in post-board games. Now, granted, I'm actually fairly convinced that the Azorius aggro decks are like bad and the blue <laughs> splashes winning in spite of everything else. I think you should be either base white or I think there's some merit to a black splash, but I, I think the blue splash is actually quite bad and people are starting to figure that out. But still, for the time being, if you're going to be playing against Azorius aggro, you certainly have to consider the fact that they will have access to spell pierce in post-board games. Yeah, I agree with you that it's not great. I mean, the, the mono white versions just like streamlined, beat you up, play unbreakable formation or whatever the formation card is called. Uh, I yeah, think that's, that's the good. negate you want. Like that, that's the card yeah. you want to counter their wrath. I, I don't really understand why people are going so hard into blue presently. Uh, I think it's kind of a trap and it's a it's shiny fog, new thing man. and people are trying it. it, it. It's got to be fogs, right? Like you need some way to interact with that. But even then, I think that you put them under so much pressure that, yeah, they're they're probably favored against you or whatever, but like not by a lot. Right. I propose in my article that's coming out tomorrow, uh, Black Splashes, because I, I think Black Splash can do just as much to hang against the Fog decks when you have access to Mortify and Duress. Like, that's totally fine. And I just think those cards are like more in line with the proactive plan of something like these white aggro decks than cards like Spell Pierce Negate, Deputy of Detention. But maybe I'm wrong. It'll be interesting to see where this deck ultimately settles. It does feel to me, though, like probably the best version is just straight mono white yeah no i'm i'm with you black splash is interesting though uh another card that showed up in ted felicetti's list is selective snare which is sort of like a sleep but can bounce all drakes i guess i don't know i i I don't really see a place where you would necessarily want this humans is another name potentially that gets a lot uh maybe soldiers against the white deck does that do anything well, Knights, I mean, you, possibly yeah. so you can you can bounce all the the history of banalia stuff which is decent but it's like at three mana maybe four mana if you're also trying to get the dauntless bodyguard or the banalish marshal or whatever it's like just you just play sleep yeah it's certainly mana intensive in a deck that's playing you know somewhere between 19 to 21 lands and and i would say the same about sleep honestly like four we're talking about three mana for gin being a ton four mana for sleep is also a ton so all of these cards have flaws and i think it's part of the reason why like white should remain a natural predator for this archetype yeah i agree i mean snare can maybe bounce some drakes to force an alpha swing, but like the, the sleeps are probably going to be able to do the same thing. And I've never really felt like I wanted sleep against is it drakes, but mm-hmm. sleeping four mana. I think it's, it's the, just the tippy top of your curve. It's the last thing that you play, you know, like I, I totally get it. Yeah. You can make it work. Uh, other options include slime bind, which is two mana flash or a enchanted creature gets minus four minus. Oh, for those of you who have not been drafting a bunch and, it's it's a good answer to a Danto Vanguard that I guess I wish we had for the last Pro Tour when we were talking about playing various Nimbizit decks and stuff. And a Danto right. Vanguard is not really an issue for this deck, uh, but just having a two-mana removal spell that slows things down is reasonable. I, I would rather have Deep Freeze for the very specific things that are threatening, like Drakes and Nimbizit and stuff, because Slimebind is just a little too narrow. But hey, if you want to Doom Blade, it's there. 
Yeah, always good to have options. Uh, Blink of an Eye is a card that Alex has a copy of in his main deck, and I think that is so heinous that I just didn't even talk about it as far as a main deck consideration <laughs> card. What do you hate so much about Blink of an Eye? Like You talked a little bit about Quench being this catch-all that can do everything. You can make the same argument for Blink of an Eye, right? No, because Quench kills it. And Blink uh, bouncing Quench a thing for... It. Blink bouncing a thing for two mana is like fine. Having some way to interact with a Drake or whatever can be game breaking, but it's not like this is a one of effect that adds a ton to your deck because you already have Merfolk Trickster. You already have outs to those things. Yeah. I mean, you can think of like wilderness reclamation turns where this matters, you know, all those big, you lost. terrible creatures. You, <laughs> you lost. lost when you they lost put the already. wilderness reclamation to play. You probably lost because you had a blink in your blink of an eye in your hand instead of something relevant. <laughs> instead of a real card, you it's lost. It's quite already. possible. Yeah, maybe just quench is what that sh- that card should be instead. Yeah, favorable wins is one that you brought up. I didn't really think about because it sounds crappy to me. Well, I think you need to have a real good reason to care about like sizing to the nth degree. Like you're super concerned about chain whirler and you want to protect all your storm tamers and. You know, I haven't found a spot for it. I don't want you to think just, I'm playing favorable wins. It's just it's cards that I... It's just a bad I, answer. How many, how many things do you, are they normally going to kill with their Chain Whirler? Like, max two, right? And so now you're playing, like, a favorable wins after your one drop to try and protect your one thing. You could just not play the other one drop, or the favorable wins could be an Essence Capture or whatever. It's just, it's not realistic. Right. I mean, it has. you have to get benefit from the Anthem effect too, and you have to go harder into Flyers. Like I'm talking about a different configuration. If you're doing like, if you're insistent upon Warkite Marauder stuff and there's just way more Flyers in your deck, then you can start talking about this stuff, I think. As it stands though, not a card I've played or would play right now. Just something I wanted to have in my memory banks should the sizing ever be super important. Uh, Sam Black's article on SCG either today or yesterday had a blue-white favorable wins list in it. So, I I mean, the card itself is okay, but just not in this deck, I don't think. Okay. Uh, Surge Mare is a card that some people play in the main deck, some very smart people like you and I, Brian, uh, mm-hmm. but for the most part is relegated as a sideboard card. And, I, I mean, this, this happens a lot where this deck has like the – really narrow cards in the main deck like the spell pierces and essence captures and stuff and then you see a lot of the copies in the sideboard so you can like mix and match as you choose in whatever matchups and we're kind of doing the same thing i think right like two search mares main one in the board oh yeah yeah it's a lot of just getting your numbers correct in post board games and making sure you can play whatever game plan you're looking to do in a certain matchup to its fullest effect yeah there's another horse diamond mare that some people play i think Pass. this card Pass. is awful their deck is all lightning bolts and you want to play a two mana one three i mean granted you have dive down right but a i would rather play fountain of renewal and b i think it does just everything worse pound for pound than surge mare because you're talking about a deck that can't kill creatures like if they play a creature it's going to be on the battlefield right surge mare is just going to save you way more life gain you way more life effectively than diamond mare ever will I occasionally get tricked into Diamond Mare, not only in Mono Blue, but I, I don't even remember what the last deck I was playing it in was. But whatever reason, I was trying them out, and they're just always absolutely awful. They die immediately. Like you said, at least there's Dive down here, but you made all the arguments. Surge Mare is better. Don't Diamond Mare. End of story. 
And I actually don't think mono red is a bad matchup. You have a bunch of like spell pierces right. and stuff, and their deck isn't this like go wide creature deck anymore. It's not like they're they're white weenie. You can't handle the the wide boards, but you can interact with stack based stuff, and you're clocking them. So them trying to burn you out is not going to work. Yeah, that's one of the big things that changed as far as the positioning of this deck was the evolution of the mono red decks and what they now look like. They look like something you can beat quite frankly. And there's much fewer problematic cards. As we talked about at length, there are a low number of rekindling phoenixes. If this deck takes off, that may change. Maybe like big red strategies come back, or maybe there's finally a, you know, another black red mid-range deck leveraging things like theater or bedevil and those kind of cards. Although man, now that mono blue is like a real deck playing those three mana spells is not super appealing in a lot of spots, but they can try. And I I think that Rekindling Phoenix will mask a lot of those weaknesses for them. But as it stands right now, you don't have a lot to fear from the red decks. And I I think the matchup's just fine. I agree, but I do think it's worth noting that the way the red decks are currently constructed also leaves them a dog to Esper because they have all these uh, lightning bolts that just get invalidated by things like Absorb, Moment of Craving, Vraska's Contempt, like... Basically, mm-hmm. everyone that I've talked to who plays Esper is just like, oh, yeah, I crush Monterey. It's not close, you know, and they're, yeah. they're talking about like 70, 80 percent win rates, especially when they have like Basilica Bell Haunt in the sideboard, which you, you just can't beat that card ever. You can't. In right. fact, I, I, st- I stole your tech for my article this week. I submitted a <laughs> mono red deck with four Nullhide Ferox in the sideboard. So, oh, no, I'm sure dude, if- I, had, I only had one. We're- Oh, I went four. I, I and I, I even mentioned that you should know better than to s- make these kind of suggestions around me because I'll just dive in wholeheartedly and completely <laughs> embrace them. So look out for four Nullhide Ferox mono red with no actual way to cast the card. They <laughs> just know nope, no if treasure your opponent map. plays nope, nothing. They just know if your opponent plays Bell Haunt, you can't win. So they're just leaning on Ferox. Okay, fair enough. Uh next card is Negate, which is I mean, spell pierces in the main deck, right? Like Negate is certainly uh, under consideration and is basically the card that people turn to as the best answer to Esper and the Nexus decks just kind of handles everything. I mean, there are some times when they have Lyra or whatever that you would want Stainful Stroke instead as a hedge, but I think for the most part, Negate is the best card that you can have against those decks. Yeah, this is what you're leaning on when you're transforming into the quasi-control deck, and you will do that in those matchups against both Esper and the Reclamation decks. The question, I think, at that point, uh, if we just kind of consent you're playing some negates, is what you are then leveraging for a card advantage. And there are a few options, and I've I've tried them all, and I don't love any of them, but I just thought of one more that I'm actually getting excited to try. So we can okay, start at the top and kind of... Go ahead. Do your thing. Yeah. 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 Okay. So the options, I'm just going to name them. Uh, Treasure yeah. Map, Search for Iskana, Mystic Archaeologist, Jace Cunning Castaway. Jace is a card that people play one of uh, sometimes. Mystic Archaeologist basically sees no play. Search for Iskanta showed up in Alex Haynes' sideboard as a one of, which I like the idea of. And then Treasure Map showed up in Ted Felicetti's sideboard. I tried them and hated them. And I love Treasure Map. Yeah, I don't I don't think that treasure map is where you want to be. You're just so mana constrained and Always. spending your mana like that. Yeah, you just you need it all. You can't spare any of it. 
you're going to find yourself just like sitting with a non-flip treasure map in a bunch of spots. Search, I, I like the one. It's been totally fine for me. I'm pretty happy with it. But the, the card I just recently stumbled upon is Mystic Archaeologist. And I, I like what it does for your wizard count. I like that it's meaningful aggression. I like that it comes down on turn two when you can still afford to top out. And then if it's not answered, it's just sitting there. And at some point, it's just going to run away with the game based on card advantage. Now, it's late in the game, but these games stretch a little bit longer. You're pretty comfortable with that. And I like the fact you're still advancing your A plan while setting up for this B plan of being able to play a long game and generate some card advantage. So I haven't actually played any games with Mystic Archaeologist yet. I was just... Basically, I looked at every single blue card in all of Standard. And this is one that I've actually dabbled with before in some Nexus sideboards. And I think the power level is there. I think it's a good enough card for Standard, almost without question. Uh, the fact that you're getting some extra wizard synergies here is just a feather in its cap. And I'm excited to try this one out. Hate it. <laughs> of course. Why do you hate this card? You're talking about treasure map being too mana intensive and you want to play Mystic Archaeologist instead. Yeah, but treasure map, when you're not spending mana on it, does absolutely nothing. It's just a stone brick sitting there on the battlefield. This is still two damage a turn, which is important. I just talked about how in these matchups, half the time I'm happy and stepping a merfolk trickster just because I need to get on board and do some damage. Well, archaeologist is doing that in the early game. And then as the game progresses, you just get the spot where you're like, I'll take two cards because there's no other action going on. And in the absence of that, it's just a beater and you're happy with that. I am very excited to try Jace Cunning Castaway. Okay. You try Jace. I will try Mystic Archaeologist. <laughs> we will, will see play, who comes out ahead. I will play one Search and one Jace. Uh, search has been pretty good for me, actually. Yeah, I like the Search, too. I, I may, that might just be the answer, honestly. And, you know, that's something that I think is a newer thing. I think Alex is the first one I saw doing that. I like it. I'm into it. Yeah, it doesn't find a threat, but... I mean, it's also mana intensive too, which we should definitely note because we're talking about archaeologists being bad and treasure map being bad. It can be plus mana too, right? Like you occasionally get some mana from it. Yes, absolutely. But I mean, in the late game, if it's four mana to draw a counter spell effectively, like you have seven hits between Wizards Retort and Negate, and that's not even counting the situations where like dive down and spell piercer counter spells, it's like, okay, you know, like we're kind of doing it. As long as you just keep Teferi off the battlefield, you can probably grind with them. Oh, yeah, I think so. All right, so that is basically all the cards. Uh, we will also post our lists and some sideboarding guides and Alex's sideboarding guide, I think. And I'm going to have to probably revise my list after this cast. I hope that's okay. Yeah, I think that's a good move. I, I, I mean, there's just so much to learn about this deck, right? It's like it's an archetype that has been existing for a very long time, but. I think it's underexplored simultaneously because we keep talking about all these things that like are still huge points of contention. And even after playing a bunch, I don't think I can give you firm answers. I think it's more going to be a sliding scale and understanding exactly where the metagame lies and just nailing that perfect 75 of mono blue. And if you can do that, maybe on a week to week basis, you might just see someone become a stone master with this deck. Like this has the same type of ceiling as something like, KCI for Matt Nass, like maybe the next mono blue master. Maybe, maybe it's just Hayne. Maybe it's you, you know, and you guys are going to go through the mythic championship and you're going to go to the MPL invitational thing and just absolutely dominate with mono blue for a few months now. Who knows? But I, I can see the capacity for someone to really get a deep understanding of this deck and leverage that to a lot of success over the next month or so. Yeah, so uh, one of the most common questions I've gotten in regards to this deck is about mulliganing. 
And Mm -hmm. this is a curious obsession deck, right? Like how much does it matter? And it's like, I will never mulligan just for curious obsession. No, I don't think that's what you want to do. I mean, maybe before you were supposed to be doing that. I I don't think that's what you want to do now. I think there's totally reasonable hands that lack obsession. You, You basically like want to get on board early and do something meaningful in the early turns. If even if it's just pressuring your opponent's life total, that's fine. And then have some way to deal with their key threats. I mean, the the other plans is just like protecting your key threats, having a hand that can transition into turn four Tempest Gin with dive down up and just ride that to victory after having, you know, one drop essence capture wizard's retort for turns one, two, three. There's a lot of setups that don't involve curious obsession, which are completely defensible. And you have a way broader range of keeps at this point. It's also worth noting that you don't need to play one drop into obsession plus dive down or spell pierce because you can just play an obsession on turn four and it's still basically as good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. it's it like I said, the sizing matters a lot too, and that'll be part yeah. of its uh, benefit in the late game too. How often are you keeping one landers? And like, does your one lander need to have a curious obsession or an opt? Like, what what sort of texture are you looking at? Yeah, I, I don't think you can keep a one-lander in the absence of one of those two spells. I, I think either one is probably acceptable, but I've certainly kept one-landers and been rewarded for it. I think there's many defensible one-land keeps. Uh, you just have to have some of the good stuff around it. Yeah, I've, I've kept one mana, like Island, one drop flyer plus opt, both play and draw, and... Obviously, on the draw, it's a little rough because if you if you're already on the draw, you're probably going to be behind, and then you have to opt for your second land potentially. Uh, things just kind of spiral out of control from there. So it's a little looser than I would like. I think the rest of your hand has to be pretty good. But if it's island one drop obsession, I'm in there every single time. Yep, I agree with that. I also like in a lot of spots too, uh, just putting my opponent to the test. Like I'm on the play, I have the one drop. They play tap land on turn one and I just jam two curious obsessions on my one drop. And I'm like, okay, either I've traded these two curious obsessions for two more cards and I haven't really lost all that much in the exchange or you're dead and you're not meaningfully playing this game in any sense whatsoever. Like, don't feel like you always have to protect the curious obsession. It's right to just jam it in a bunch of instances. And if your opponent doesn't have it on turn two, you just run away with the game and the game's over. So what do you think in those situations of maybe only playing one because they still have to kill it, right? It is still as threatening with one than two. And then you have 13 draws to uh, seven other one drops, three spell pierce, three dive down, right? I think think it depends a lot on the texture of your hand. Like you can certainly see alternate setups where you're fine. But like in the case of, I don't know, I'd have to think through it now. If you just had one drop, two curious obsessions, nothing else, do I jam there? Like, absolutely. A hundred percent I'm jamming in that spot. I also like that it closes off some outs too. Like, there's not a ton of moment of craving in the format, but there is some. And no, that's fair. That's reduced. There's shock as well. So I've mostly been taking just the all-in aggressive line, but certainly there's hand textures where I would back off that stance and, and try and play a little bit safer. 
Yeah, because so you have outs to those 13 cards. Opt is sort of a backdoor out too, where it's like if you get to play another creature and put obsession on it and hit them, they, they still are put to the test of like, I have to kill this thing immediately. And you could have mm-hmm. drawn like protection in the meantime. So I think there are situations where you just play one. But I mean, even without protection, I'm almost certainly playing like one drop into obsession against an opponent where... I'm guaranteed to get a card off of it because they have to kill it. You're still cycling your obsession. And uh, there are just some game over scenarios where you like peel a dive down off it. Right. So you mentioned one land hands and the challenge with keeping them. And I, I think, I think we've accurately assessed when they are keepable, but I, I do think the actual harder problem to solve is like four land hands. That's where things get a little sticky because you you then have so much air. And I had an interesting hand. I wanted to know if you would keep this game one on the play. Storm Tamer, Essence Capture, Retort, Four Island. I kept that and was very happy with it. And I wanted to know if it's something you even consider mulliganing or if you just think like that's enough even without any kind of meaningful clock or meaningful card advantage engine. Just because there's so many live draws in your deck, it seems acceptable to me. I don't know. I I think that's good enough. I mean, you're on the play, which means that you're going to be able to capture a two drop if you want. And then you have a two, two flyer, which isn't, you know, game over or anything. Uh, but then you have a retort. And it's just like, unless you go like brick, brick, brick. And I mean, realistically, it probably has to be four bricks, too, because you don't necessarily have to counter their two drop. Like if they right. play a wide growth walker, that is resolving. Right. And you don't yep, care. about Absolutely. It. Uh, so you have a lot of time to draw into stuff. And in the meantime, you're fairly well protected. So I think that hand is just good enough. Yeah. I, and I think one of the reasons why this deck is better is because hands like that are acceptable because there is so much like use all my mana every turn, have to play my four drops before I start doing anything really impactful going on in standard presently. And, and yeah. that's another feather in this deck's cap. So what if it's like Terramander, Terramander, Essence Capture, Four Island? Certainly worse. Uh, and then there's there's some decks where that just is completely meaningless. Right. Uh, your Terramanders are not upgrading anytime soon. That's probably a mulligan for me. Yeah. I, I think having a second one mana, one, one flyer that doesn't necessarily trade with an opponent's card or like a relevant card, you know, is, it just worse. makes... Yeah, it makes the hand so much worse than just ha- basically having like two removal spells and a creature that sticks around to kill your opponent and hold an obsession. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I think that that's kind of about it for mulliganing. Like, just play the deck a few times, you'll get the hang of it. Yeah, it, it's self-explanatory. Your your powerful hands are obviously powerful. The borderline hands, it's like, I don't think I would have been super punished mulliganing that first hand. It's like your sixes can be just as good as that hand was. And you do have a bunch of reasonable sixes. One of the benefits of playing a deck that only needs one or two lands to operate. So, Yep. Uh, do you want to just go down the matchups right quick and talk about your experience? Like, you know, if, basically if they're favorable or not. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll, we'll go down the top from MTG Goldfish, starting with Sultai Midrange. Very favorable in my eyes, and one of the reasons to play the deck. Your, your counterspells just are lining up so well against them. All of their stuff is expensive. Even like you think the fact that Crassus has a cast trigger matters a lot. No, it doesn't. If you Essence Capture that card, they're on such a back foot. It's hard for them to cast Crassus of meaningful size before they're just dead. I've been very happy playing this matchup. 
Me too. It takes very, very specific things for me to lose. It generally involves Llanowar Elves, allowing them to double spell very quickly. And then if they have a bunch of cheap removal and cut all their expensive cards, then it becomes a lot harder also. So I don't know. So much needs to go wrong in order for you to lose. Like your draw has to be abysmal. Their draw has to be great. Obviously, if you make a mistake at any point, like a, a noticeable mistake, then things can get really bad for you. But that's the same in, in any matchup. Yeah, and I think the fact that I play Surge Mare main deck is also making this matchup way easier for me as well. I've been in and out with Surge Mare main deck, and it, like, obviously it matters. It, it does things. It, it just gets to the point where it, it blocks, buffers your life total, and then starts fireballing them, you know? But Alex mm. doesn't even board it in against them. Wow, interesting. Uh, I, I've been very satisfied with the card. The fact that it blocks, like, max Jade Light Ranger matters so much that's that's the only way they can realistically race you is if they have right. jade light ranger beats going so that's wild to me but i mean that also speaks in favor of how good this matchup is that i think you can probably get away with it and be just fine in your sideboard you have mono green hate card against the all mono green creature deck and you're just like right, nah, and I you're don't passing need it. on it <laughs> that's crazy next matchup is esper tell me how you found this matchup Mostly the same type of thing. They have a lot of very expensive spells. You have Spell Pierce. I think it's better for the Esper player than it is for the Sultai player because they do have a little bit more cheap removal. They can do like Moment of Graving type stuff. You know, they can play Counter Wars to some extent much better than the Sultai deck can. So still favorable, not as far favorable. Maybe we're talking like 55-45 is my guess. Yeah, uh, I I basically agree with you. I mean, I do think that you're kind of a natural predator to decks like this, but like Esper has just a bunch of cheap interaction and the card duress matters a lot, which obviously Saltai has potential access to too, but Mm -hmm. some of them have just been playing it in low numbers in both archetypes, which I think has helped Mono Blue a lot. Yeah, and it's also worth noting that, (laughs) I mean, it's funny because we, we talked about doing this show I don't know when we first said we were going to do Mono Blue. It was either Sunday or Monday where we figured out we were going to do a deep dive on this deck. And kind of in the three days since, it feels like this deck is already old hat. Like now everyone's into it and it's starting to propagate all over the place. And maybe we're start going to start seeing those first adjustments from these other decks now. And maybe decks will be more conscientious of this matchup. Whereas I guarantee going into SCG Baltimore, no one was like, I better be ready for Mono Blue. I'm going to play these cards. You're going to see some more subtle adjustments from all of these decks now that'll maybe get things a little bit more even but i just think conceptually this deck has some edges against these strategies that are really hard to overcome your nut draw is unbeatable by basically everyone yeah yeah that's a nice thing to have in your back pocket you start drawing two cards a turn you counter every spell they play like no one beats that I love having that out in any deck. I, like It's one of the reasons I love Amulet. No matter what's going on on the other side of the table, maybe I'll just kill you on turn two and you don't get to do anything ever. Like It's always an option. Uh, and Mono Blue has a lot of the same feel to it. Yeah, Michael Jacob always used to use like nut draw potential as kind of a tiebreaker for his deck selection. Like He wanted his deck to have some sort of nut draw that people couldn't beat, but it wasn't like, oh, you know, I'm only going to play this. Yeah, I, I like that theory. Third most popular deck is Mono Red Aggro. We kind of talked about this before, where it's like the the more spell heavy they are, creature light they are, the better this matchup is. Oddly enough, because you you are yeah. still trying to like protect little crappy creatures, but yeah, and I think things are still trending in the direction of spell heavy because 
I mean, maybe what ultimately is just going to be proven is that these decks are not good because I don't think the way they can compete is on the battlefield. I think both the Sultai and Esper decks have ways to mitigate their battlefield presence, so they can't win that way. If they're more stack-based, then I think they are also getting preyed on by things like Esper. If they're all bolts, again, they can't beat all the life gain. And they're definitely getting preyed on by Mono Blue. So like, where's the sweet spot for these red decks? I don't really know. And I don't think Big Red is the answer to something like Esper. So it could be Red gets a little bit squeezed right now, has to adapt to find an in. Maybe it has to be something like Gruel or, you know, some other splash deck. But I, I think that the mono blue deck will find itself fine in that case as well. Gruel is good against Esper and mono blue, but is completely heinous against Sultai. Got it. Yeah, I don't, I don't have Gruel experience, so I can't speak to the the matchups, but that's that's good to know. I think Legion War Boss is where you want to be for Esper and Mono Blue. And if you have enough like Lava Coils and stuff, even against Sultai, you are eventually going to get got by like Fine Finality. But, you know, hopefully then you have like a Frenzy or enough Burn to finish the game or whatever. But it is mostly just about playing the least amount of interaction that you possibly can, playing the most amount of threats. And, you know, maybe that does involve Rekindling Phoenix too and not playing like five drops and treasure maps and stuff, but just kind of going back to like old school mono red, but you know, still playing stage, obviously. Yeah. Not my strong suit. So I'm going to let others figure out that build of mono red and then maybe I'll swoop back into the picture, but uh, it, it has to change. I think that much is clear. Word. Uh, next deck is, is it Drake's, which not a lot of people were playing until Brad Carpenter top aided indie with it. And it also wasn't very popular in Baltimore, but it was very, very popular on Magic Online, like multiple copies in the top eight of the PTQ and stuff like that. So uh, both Issa Drake's and Mono Blue Tempo kind of seeing a resurgence here. Yeah, it's interesting because most of the folks I talked to in Baltimore weren't super pleased with their Drake's deck. I know I had the chance to talk to Kevin Jones a little bit, who was playing uh, actual Arclight Phoenix, went back to the older builds, thinking it was a way to get a leg up on Esper. He said his deck was fine. He didn't sound over the moon about it. And a bunch of other people I talked to on Drake's, again, all were like, eh, it's fine. Not super excited. However, I think it's a horrible matchup for Mono Blue. Probably, I don't know if this or the white aggro decks are the worst matchup. But I feel like I have a chance against Drake's and I don't really feel like I have a chance against the white decks. Yeah, maybe that's accurate. I, I, I do think there's some lose to Drake's. <laughs> right. Uh, I think there's some sideboard options. We talked about the uh, transmogrification wand. Maybe that'll do some damage to this matchup. We'll see. But as it stands now, uh, not favorable, probably like 40, 60, maybe 35, 65. I don't really believe in a lot of 35, 65s. I think that's often a little bit overstated. So maybe I'll say 62, 38. I don't know. It, it's definitely in Drake's favor. I think it's 30, 70, but I haven't had Deep Freeze or the one in my deck in the matches that I played it. And uh, I was going through all the Magic Online lists trying to do some research to make sure that we talked about like every single sideboard option and stuff. And one of the things that someone was doing was like going up to four Essence Capture and three Essence Scatter. It was like, good God. There wow. Just so many counter spells, but that might do it, you know? Yeah, maybe. I, I guess it depends if like they recognize that and then they just want to fight over your scatters and captures with spell pierce. And the fact that you're only, you know, 19, 20 lands, you may just not hit the point where you're able to do that battle. Certainly you could as well. I don't know. In- interesting you also, approach. You also just straight up lose and then miss it, I guess, which is not great and makes that plan pretty heinous. Right. 
All right. Uh, next matchup is Lemire. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that's 50-50. Yeah, exactly 50-50. Unless you're Alex, then it's probably like 60-40. <laughs> Must be nice. Yep. Uh, Azorius aggro definitely gets worse without the blue when when they're just like more low to the ground. And if, if they're slowing down a decent amount, it definitely helps you. But I think you're still just going to get beat up by like 1-1 lifelinking vampires. Yeah, try some sleep. Maybe that'll let you steal a few games, but this is another bad matchup for sure. I would try to beat Drake's and just scoop this matchup. Maybe, maybe that's the approach. Look, I, again, in Baltimore, I talked to a bunch of people playing Azorius aggro. There were outliers, some people who absolutely love their deck, but what I heard a lot more of was just like consternation and why did I play this deck? And this was a mistake and a, a <laughs> lot of that going on. So I don't know. I, I personally believe that it's not, particularly strong doesn't have a ton of good matchups but if mono blue is going to take on a resurgence then all that can change so uh, it'll be interesting to see what goes on in the coming weeks as far as the azorius aggro decks go tom ross and i were talking at one point uh during baltimore and talking about how to try and fix his white deck and i was adamant that the blue cards were just bad and he was like yeah you're probably right and then i was talking about cutting dauntless bodyguard and just trying to get like Rustwing Falcon and Healer's Hawk in there, play more flyers, be more low to the ground, and even have uh, the Dub Dub 2 2 flyer from the, the Planeswalker deck or whatever in the deck. Just like play all flyers, right? But right. Uh, Tithe Taker is just incredible against Mono Blue. So if if that becomes the case, then it's like, all right, don't, don't play the crappy uh, Leon and Sky Hunter or whatever. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to do. And, you know, a build like that, now I'm worried about Esper, where you're losing access to Dauntless Bodyguard. And maybe you're just leaning super hard on the formation at that point, the Unbreakable oh, Formation. Yeah. Oh, and you yeah. Can make that work. What were you talking, like three, four copies? At least three, yeah. Yeah, card's well, good. A- I, it seems wildly underplayed to me for how impactful it is. Tom suggested cutting History of Benalia and or Benalish Marshall. So I could buy that. Yeah. I, I, History of Benalia is a card that like when it snowballs, you're like, oh, this card's unbeatable. And I see it so often doing nothing now in so many spots. And it's weird because it is so powerful, but that's just how formats go. Sometimes even the most powerful threats aren't lining, lining up well. And I kind of feel that way about History of Benalia right now. Yeah. It just doesn't line up well with like anything that Sultai is doing. It's definitely or almost certainly your best card against Esper, you know, provides two threats, clocks them very hard, etc. But against Sultai, especially if you're on the all flyers plan, it's like, what are you, what are you doing with this history? It just doesn't do anything. Right. Next deck. You're going to love this four color gates, baby. I, I hope that it's Nexus of gates. Cause I've come around. I've played very few games with Nexus of gates, but I am convinced that it is way better than the creature version. Let's just stop the show right now. It's not going to get any better than that for me. You may as well pack uh, it in. I still think it's a, a, a bad Nexus deck, but. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, well, the good news is that Mono Blue beats the living crap out of it. It's a joke. Yeah. Yeah. You're a tremendous favorite. And it, that extends to all Nexus decks, really. I, I think that's one of the huge reasons why this deck is due for an uptick. Because if you go over to the Magic Online PTQ, uh, Nexus actually dominated that PTQ. It also won that PTQ with a very nice looking Bant list. And it kind of feels like this could be the week where Reclamation finally turns the corner and becomes like the 
linchpin of the format and maybe lives up to its hype as the best card in Ravnica Allegiance, which I still absolutely believe it to be. And if that's the case, Mono Blue is just going to uh, have a field day picking on those decks without a doubt. And I, I'm not sure exactly what the Nexus decks are supposed to do about it. I mean, I guess like I would surprise Niv. Jam. Yeah, Niv or Lyra is what comes, just maybe like having access to all that stuff and just relying on your insane Gates mana base to let you cast it. But yeah, some big flyer that they're not prepared to answer in post-board games is probably how Nexus is going to steal a ter- tournament over this next weekend. Yeah, the only time I've lost to Gates specifically is the Ram. Like, I can stop everything else, but it's like, if I don't have the right counterspell on the right turn, they can pretty easily, like, slip a Ram in. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, just you just get killed by it pretty quick. Uh, especially if... The, uh, They've done stupid things to me, man, with like Ram and Nexus, and it's it, it's been bad. I got bad memories. So uh, all the entrancing does melodies, things. all the all the entrancing melodies are coming in every time. <laughs> that's that's a bold move, but uh, yeah, it's the I only mean, they way have, you they, lose. They have Crassus too, so I know. I think that's fine. Yeah, yeah. There's there's like the other Nexus decks, and then it was down to like Esper Midrange, which I don't think is very big, but like could po- probably be a, a kind of a bad matchup. I don't know. They could go wide with Hero Precinct One. I haven't actually played against this deck much, but it seems like it haven't could be played bad. against it either. Yeah, haven't played against it either. But it seems more problematic than Control. I mean, at least they're putting oh, forth yeah. a game plan, which could be tough for you to deal with, and they they still do like the problematic things against you. They still have answers and removal and. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's enough. Yeah. So the last part is if you are not trying to play mono blue for whatever reason, what are you supposed to do in your deck to have counterplay against it or actually just improve your matchup? And we sort of talked about it a little bit, like the, the weaknesses that red has and how mono white could be best favored against it. What is a good side we're playing from Golgari, Sultai, whatever. Uh, but Rekindling Phoenix is another one. And how often have you actually played against this card? I've, I've lost every time I have. Like, I don't know. It's been a ton of times, but I just lose. I, if Rekindling Phoenix hits the battlefield, no matter what my board position is, no matter what else I have going on, I will eventually lose the game. It's very problematic for our deck. And you're not realistically going to get to six mana to steal it. I don't think there's any real way around it. As it stands right now, I mean, Deep Freeze is a nice one for sure. Yeah. And uh, maybe I didn't have access to Deep Freeze in the games I played against Rekindling Phoenix. I would have to think back on it. But that's a start. But if it stays on the battlefield, you are almost certainly going to lose. It is very problematic for our deck. Could you ever like attack into it and then steal the egg with Entrancing Melody or bounce it with Exclusion Mage, something like that? I never had a spot to in the game I played. I it, The problem was it just shut down my card advantage engine as well. And drawing one card a turn, I didn't find any answers. And then a second rekindling Phoenix entered the battlefield. And now game. one was attacking, one was blocking. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, other things that I like are just duress, uh, lowering your curve in general, trying to go wide because mono blue doesn't really block that much. So as long as you are just clocking them while also keeping their important cards off the battlefield. Uh, you can you can beat Siren Storm Tamer beats and Merfolk Trickster beats. I believe in you. I think you can do it. Drakes and just Niv-Mizzet in general. Niv-Mizzet is just incredible because, like I said, your clock is not that fast. They are relying on counter spells to interact a lot and don't have a lot of ways to interact with it. Like There are lists in, in the last week that are just cold to Niv-Mizzet. Like, literally can't beat it. 
Yeah, and I haven't seen a lot of Niv Mizzet recently, and I it feels like it's time for a resurgence, right? Like this is this is a Niv Mizzet week. This is where it's supposed to make its re-entrance into the metagame and make people respect it again because it's been gone from the early weeks of this format. Yeah. And I, I think rightfully so. I mean, uh, there are a lot of answers to it. The metagame was not necessarily uh, ripe for it when Monored was crushing everything and whatever. And Saltai obviously has a lot of good answers. So it's like, well, you can play Star of Extinction. It took a while for that card to come back, but otherwise you had to lick and stick Nimbus it dive down. And those strategies were always a little flimsy. Mm-hmm. No, that's fair. But yeah, Nivmizit certainly out of the sideboard of Drake's is incredible. And then if you want to do stuff like uh, play it in any of the Wilderness Reclamation decks, either with or without Nexus of Fate, that is certainly doable. And that is the thing you can do. Just slow down the game with like Shock, Lava Coils, some counter spells, and then play Nivmizit because they're going to be hiding behind a counter wall and they can't do anything. Yeah, maybe those Teamer Niv-Mizzet decks are ready to pop back up, the Teamer Reclamation Niv-Mizzet stuff. And when you get to play Niv-Mizzet and then immediately untap all six lands you just used to play it, that's a really good feeling. It's very difficult to lose from that point. Big surprise. So final part of the show, finally, we have a question uh, from the Discord. Yeah, so we asked our listeners this week to give us their best mono blue related questions and we were over in our discord looking through these a lot of great questions but i want to talk about one from c sparks and c sparks asks the arena ladder seems to be adapting to combat mono blue fairly well with more copies of shock and shiv and fire more flying blockers and even hate cards like collision colossus and sagittor's volley what do you think is the best way to respond to a more hostile meta and do you think it will be reflected in paper as well Jerry, what do you have for Sea Sparks? I got volleyed. It was not cool. I was like, what the hell? What is this crap? Yeah, that card's a beating. Yeah. So I do think that there are some sort of knee-jerk reactions that have picked up over the last few days, and we're recording this Wednesday night. And like you mentioned, we had talked about recording this specific episode on Sunday uh, for – SCG Baltimore on Friday, I posted what I would play in the tournament, which was mono blue. So it was like, it's, it's had almost a week at this point to kind of catch on and everything. And people are certainly there. So when you are grinding the ladder and you keep running into the same deck over and over again, you are naturally going to just change your deck because you're kind of getting like these real time updates on what the metagame actually looks like. Whereas paper is week to week. And while there are things like magic online results, and maybe they've been playing some of the latter too, you don't necessarily know that all of your opponents in real life are as tuned in as you are. So I think for the most part, people might change their deck choice or change something specific about their deck. Like maybe they will not be as cold to mono blue as they normally would, but I don't think that people are going to make any drastic decisions, right? Like it's not like you're going to show up to SCG Dallas and everyone is going to be playing uh, mono white aggro all of a sudden. Like that's just not going to happen. So I, if I were playing on the ladder for the next couple of days, I would definitely be respectful of mono blue, be understanding that's like very popular, but then your deck that you play on ladder and in tournaments should hopefully be very different. Yeah. I, so as far as magic online was ahead of the paper metagame arenas, even further ahead, which is wild. 
but <laughs> things are evolving to answer mono blue, where I actually think that paper hasn't even fully contemplated the deck's existence as it stands right now. So C-Sparks, you are involved in a community of players who are, quite frankly, absolutely on the cutting edge. Like these are players who know what's happening with standard. A lot of times they're the players shaping standard. You know, you're looking at someone like Kane or, or Baker. These are the guys figuring out decks every week who are pushing things ahead. And when you're involved in a discord like that, you kind of get this tunnel vision and start to believe that everyone understands things on this level. I think if you're showing up at Dallas, there's going to be a very large portion of the room that has no idea this mono blue swell is even happening right now. And the news is just really... going to be, sorry, the, the, the news is just going to be getting to them that like Esper is a good deck. Yeah, you know, you're exactly right. Like they're going to look at the SCG results and be like, oh, I think Esper's pretty good. And that seems weird when you're as plugged in as you are and you're participating in our Discord and all the cutting edge information is coming out literally on a 24 hour basis. It's like the, you know, we talk about the 24 hour news cycle. Our Discord is a 24 hour news cycle for magic. It does not stop. It's always innovating. It's always working. It's always yep. moving forward. And it can lead to this perception that things are at a more accelerated state than they actually are. I think Mono Blue will be an excellent choice at uh, SCG Dallas. I think it's an excellent choice for any RPTQs being played this weekend. I think you are going to be ahead of the format playing Mono Blue. If you're on the ladder, maybe there's some concessions to be made. Maybe you want to hate on Mono Blue for a little while. Maybe you do want to pick up uh, the white aggro decks, which I think are like pretty fine for ladder play for the most part anyway. Uh, you certainly get a lot of games in very quickly, which is a plus. So maybe that's the take the uh, approach to take on the ladder. As far as paper goes, I expect big, big things out of Mono Blue in Dallas. Yeah, absolutely. I I do feel like there are a lot of people who are like, all right, Wednesday rolls around. Uh, what am I playing this weekend? And then they start checking the results from last week's tournament. And it's like, all right, Esper's busted. And then, you know, maybe they go a step further and they're just like, oh, I guess, you know, Mono Blue would be great. But I think a lot of the time people are just like, oh, I'm going to play Esper or, you know, some other deck that they have that might have a reasonable matchup against it or whatever. But no one goes so far as to be like, all right, everyone's going to play Mono Blue because it's good against Esper and Sultai. Everyone's going to have Sagittarius Volley. All right, I have to get off that and, you know, play White Weenie or whatever. Like, it just, it doesn't work that way. And there are so many times where I've just leveled myself by going like a level too deep. And, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes, sometimes when you're, when you're lucky, you go from level one to level four, which is effectively level one again. And then yeah, you you're, loop back you're, around. Yeah, you're in the right spot, but uh, you know, don't don't go too far, don't overthink it, just play a good deck. And in this case, I think Mono Blue is both a good deck and has good matchups uh against some of the top decks. And yeah, you you might run into some bad matchups, but uh that's gonna be the case no matter what you play. Yeah, I'll uh I'll be pulling for the shitters this weekend. I'm definitely rooting for everyone who is choosing to pick up mono blue it's a bold choice it's one that shows a lot of range and it's honestly just a really fun deck to play I, i'll be heading to arena right after we finish this cast to do some more mono blue nonsense well i have to start working on other things and i'm not playing a tournament this weekend so i am done with mono blue for now uh i have to go work on things like the invert invent wilderness reclamation deck that five owed Oh, good God. Well, Godspeed. Any Wilderness Reclamation deck is a friend of mine. So did, as always, keep me posted. Did you see that deck? 
No, I, I haven't seen it, but now actually I'm going to go look at that as soon as we finish the podcast and then All right, I can I'm just, go uh, listen, back to Mono Blue. I know we've been talking for two hours, but let me tell you about this deck that uses four copies of Invert Invent to get its one Nexus of Fate and a Flood of Recollection to rebuy the Invert Invent, right? What? So once you once you have all the mana, you, you just take like four turns in a row. And then on the last one, you get a vivid revival to get back all the invert invents. And yeah, man, you just keep going. You just you basically Why? Take all Why are we doing this? Because it's once you have reclamation and X amount of mana, you just take all the turns. Like the game just ends. And in the meantime, like invert or invent, whatever, is a good setup card because it like, you know, finds card drawing or growth spiral or like shimmer or whatever to help you find reclamation. I think, I think you would actually like it. Do you know what else I just realized? What? It also, it also killed surge mare. What a nightmare scenario. Oh my God. If I get my surge mare killed by an invert, I'm going to have words with my opponent. And by words, I mean emotes, which will probably be promptly squelched, <laughs> but I'm still going to do them. I, I already pre-squelched you. So taste nice. it. Good, good plan. Good plan. No, I tried playing it that deck on arena. It's not feasible. Yeah, there's some issues with uh, the Nexus decks on Arena. I think like the ones with kill conditions are completely fine. If you're just like making a Crassus and then swinging over a couple turns, that works. Anything else is very problematic. And I hope there's some form of answer coming soon because, I mean, Arena has been such a tremendous tool for understanding standard, for testing standard, for playing standard. I'd hate to see the metagame fracture already like are there really going to be two different metagames the magic online slash paper metagame and the magic arena metagame that would be really sad because i've i've really been enjoying my time with arena and i hope there's some solution for the nexus problem mono blue just show up and beat all the nexus decks it'll be fine all right that works too that's game